They, well, actually, we started last week, was talking about a new perspective. So, Suze, would you come up and join me here this morning? We thought what we'd do is have uh, one of our guest speakers come back again, because last week was kind of a little clunky, and you got halfway through your talk, and then there was a bit of a disruption. So, can I ask, Suze, is that normally the attention that you attract whenever you go talking? I have a seven-year-old, so disruption and interruption happen all the time, (laughs) but... uh, you know, it is what it is, and it, it actually uh, prompted me to think about, and I haven't thought about for a long time, those that um, around the world that can't have religious freedom and practice their faith. So it was actually a good kind of gift for me to be praying for that this week. Yeah, and we've been doing a, a bit of work with the, the centre here and all those things so that yep. we can help um, circumvent things like that happening again. But I just wanted to say to you as a community, if you were here last week, thank you for the way in which you responded I think in a, in a really um, de-escalating way and a really kind way, and I just want to say thank you. And if you weren't here, ask someone afterwards who's nodding gently right now, what happened? Um, and uh, they can fill you in a little bit more. So thank you. Um, we got partway through the talk last week, and uh, because of what happened... I. We thought, no, we actually want you to come back and do it again. And you said, yeah, look, people will know the first half. I said, don't worry, don't worry. They will remember everything you said in the first half, but they might have forgotten in in light of sort of what transpired afterwards. So thank you. Welcome back. I thought it'd be good to get a little, to know you a little bit, just uh, so that people can go, who is this? Susan Lady, who's just sort of stood up, because you've been part of our community now for a little while. So if we could back up for a moment, tell us a little bit about yourself, name, rank, serial file, that kind of thing. Where was home? Where did you grow up? What was that like? Yeah, I grew up in Sydney, a suburban middle child of three daughters, three kids, and um, had a great, fun, exciting, kind of pretty normal and stable upbringing, which I'm really grateful for. Northern beaches? No, in... Epping. Would you like it to be on the northern yes. beaches? Okay, all right. <laughs> where, during winter. <laughs> where did yep. God fit into your life as a teenager? Did he? Yep. So my dad was a pastor, very involved in um, all the life, what that meant, youth camps, fantastic youth leaders, um, just seemed kind of normal and okay and um, just a, a good, solid base um, of understanding the Bible, understanding faith, but doing it in a really kind of appropriately teenage way. So there was lots of ups and downs and lots of drama, but um, it was it was good and a good kind of basis for the rest of life. I think where it really kind of kicked in was in my late teens. Um, our church was involved, started getting involved in Global Interaction. I started doing a couple of short-term exposure awareness trips, so Papua New Guinea and Thailand and uh, Bangladesh and Nepal, and that's where, I guess, for me, the boxes of discipleship, of leadership development, of trusting in God and of adventure and excitement kind of all were ticked and um, I just grew exponentially during those times so that was where it really... So you did short-term trips to those four places that you just described and that shaped a huge part of your... um, You know, when we're teenagers, and I can remember because it wasn't that long ago for me, we sort of want to come out under the shadows of our parents. Was that an easy transition for you, faith-wise? I think when I was in my early 20s, I felt really full up of all this learning, I don't know how many hours of sermons and Bible studies and camps and talks, so full, but I was really kind of restrained in this little Christian bubble. Um, and I found, I thought, I've got to kind of break out. So at 22, 23, I finished uni. I was a primary school teacher. 
And I remember sitting on my parents' kitchen table with the map of New South Wales. This is pre-Google. Siri hadn't been born yet. And I uh, had the, the list of all the Department of Ed schools. And I had my criteria in my head, which was anywhere between two and six hours from home. And a school that had more than three teachers. I didn't want to be in the tiny, tiny school. So I had over 600 schools on that list that I sent away to the department and, and said, send me anywhere. But I was sort of saying to God, well, here I am, send me. Uh, ended up in a school on the border of New South Wales, an ACT. Very low socioeconomic, tough place. All new teachers, no experienced teachers wanted to be there. Um, but it was a real breakout of that bubble moment. I looked in the trading post. That was pre-Facebook Marketplace. What's the trading post? <laughs> And, uh, I don't know what the trading post is. Oh, come on, Troy. Uh, I found a housemate through there. I was the only Christian teacher in the school, like just the works. And it was just a fantastic opportunity to, uh, to put all that learning and thinking and stuff into practice. Yeah. It's good. I didn't know you could find friends on trading posts. I'd forgotten <laughs> yeah. that. So now you work with an organisation called GIA, Global Interaction. It's connected with, for those of you who may or may not be familiar, um, a denomination called the Baptist Denomination, of which we are part of. And you work there. Hmm. So could you just explain to us, we, we saw it, for those who were here last week, um, a trailer to that, a bit of an explanation. What is GIA and how did you get to be there? Sure. Uh, because I'd done all those short-term trips, I knew some people um, in the organisation. And when I'd only been teaching in Canberra for a couple of years, someone said, Can you, do you want to move to Melbourne and take this job as a youth consultant? Which was basically um, mobilising, encouraging young people, um, young adults, to engage in what global mission is around the world. Um, I quickly said no. I, it was a terrible time. Tim and I had been just started going out and he... Well, been going out for a little while. He'd just moved down to Canberra to give this relationship a go. I'd done all this uni. I was loving this kind of teaching life. Um, so I, I remember flying down to... Saying, oh, well, I'll just come and talk to you about it. You know, Came down to Melbourne and I remember sitting on this great big table with five of the leadership of the organisation. Apart from one, all were decades older than me. And I just told them all the reasons why I would not come to Global Interaction. <laughs> and it was a non-interview. Um, but the leader at the time said, no, we, we want you to come, invite you to come. And, and he, I remember him saying to me back then that it's often the people that don't want to take these roles that we really want because there must be something more than ambition or money or power or all these other reasons. There must be some kind of calling of the, the spirit in their lives. Um, he said... and over and over again he quoted John Wimber saying you spell faith R-I-S-K and we are taking you are taking a risk but to to do this we are taking a risk in bringing you on you don't want the job I cried my whole way through my commissioning service um, but here I am 16 later 16 years later still there I've had some babies and done some study and other things uh, in that time um, but that sense of uh, taking that risk, following Jesus, um, as we've just been singing about, people from all nations being able to say that our God reigns is really what it's all about. So um, that's why I'm still there. Um, my hope for global interaction is two things. One is that we do what we've always done for 140 years. We've been part of walking alongside people who... Uh, sense a call of God in their lives to share with those of other nations and other places. And I hope we continue to do that. 
Uh, Secondly, I hope we do what we've never done because the world is a different place. Um, No longer are we sending people from the west to the rest, the global north to the global south. There's mass migration, there's urbanisation, there's increases in technology. Um, They call it polycentric mission, people from everywhere to everywhere. And we need to be, uh, and my, my team and I are really thinking about what does that mean? What does that look like? How do we receive people? How do we send from different places to other places and, and enjoy the richness of what that is going to look like into the future? Very long answer. No, that's brilliant. That's very good. You know, we're talking today about a new perspective. Mm. Um, could you just explain to us perhaps a God encounter that you've had in your life that's shaped you or perhaps given you a new perspective like that? I think about 10 years ago, one of our um, intercultural workers uh, shared with me a conversation he'd had uh, in Malawi with a, a Yao, Yao is the name of a people group, new believer. He was talking to this guy and he said, what do you think heaven might be like? And this guy said, "For heaven, heaven for me is one egg every day, one egg every day. And a little bit of context, the Yao people uh, used to be the slave traders from Africa. They were very much influenced by the, the trade route. They were an Islamic people. Um, they were despised by the people around them because they would actually you know, sl- trade in this, this slavery, this terrible stuff going on. End of the slave trade, abolitionists, William Wilberforce, all that stuff, they lost their livelihood overnight. So the Yao people are despised, hated, rejected and in absolute abject poverty. So for this guy to say that heaven is like one egg every day, it's actually real. That is a meal, a food. That is the life, the difference between life and death for that person. This was 10 years ago. I heard this story. I hear lots of stories, but that one kind of stuck and it lodged in me. Then, this is going to be seem really weird, but if we bring it back to me, like 3135, living in Ringwood East, I think about that story many days when I collect the eggs from our six hens. And I hold these eggs in my, my hand and I collect them each day and I am grateful for the, the abundance that we have. I think about this guy, he's, he's probably long gone, life expectancy in Malawi is very low, uh, and I think about the, the gifts of gratitude that I have for that egg every day. And then I... It's got to be more than that, right? So our family uh, has put out a collection bucket out on our driveway of people's scraps and our neighbours in our street all every day put all their scraps and food in there and then we feed that to the chickens and then we have these excess eggs and then we put them out again and then uh, people can come and take the eggs and some people give donations and then we take that money and we buy chickens in Cambodia for other people And it sort of started this whole kind of community thing. I have more conversations with neighbours around the chickens and the eggs (laughs) than other things. People walk their, you know, toddlers around and push their prams and I hold their little chubby hands and take them in and collect the eggs and say, wow, look at this amazing egg. So there's something in that around this guy on the other side of the world, this new believer, telling this story that impacts my faith here in Melbourne that is about community, that is about the environment, that is about gratitude and about grace, that has a whiff of God about it. So that's a little story. That's good. Well, we're going to hear right now from a family who are called the Blacks. They live in Thailand. 
And uh, he's been doing some cultivating of his own. So it's actually a bit of a theme. We're not inviting people to start a garden, but I think it's a good idea. Or chooks. <laughs> it could be a good idea. Um, but let's take a look at them right now. Give, you, give us a little bit of perspective of some of the work that GIA is involved in. Thanks, Suze. Appreciate it. The best thing about getting back to Thailand is being able to see our friends again. During our home assignment there in Australia, you would have probably heard us talk a lot about our neighbours and especially a special lady called Auntie Ja. Auntie Ja really was our first friend that we met when we moved to our house here in, what, 2019. We still remember the day that we were showing the house that we live in now and there she was, ready and waiting to greet us and to tell us that she would be our new house helper. Since then, we've been growing closer and closer, and we've been able to share stories with her about our lives, our faith in Jesus, and our desire to share Jesus with others in this community. Just last week, while she was uh, sweeping the floor, she was asking more and more questions. I was able to explain to her that we had been praying to um, Jesus that he would lead us to the people, and asking people like yourselves to be praying with us that God would lead us to the people that he wanted us to know that he would provide us with opportunities to love them like he loves them. This is when I told her that she was a child of God. When I said this to her, she said, I have goosebumps all over my body. The exciting thing about Auntie Ja is that she's just one of 10 siblings and her, her sister lives right next door and we've become friends with her as well. And her brothers all live directly around our house. When we were back in Australia, I felt like God was leading me to plant a veggie patch in our backyard when we got back to Thailand. You may remember me talking about uh, the weeds out the back of our house and my struggle with keeping them down, and that I even got in trouble once for spraying the weeds. Over the past few months, in my spare time, I've been able to get out the back and start cutting the grass and getting rid of all the weeds, ready to plant uh, a small veggie patch. And the best part of this is that uh, the neighbours, those ones that I couldn't see before through all the weeds, I'm now able to have conversations with. And these are Basajar's family. As I continue to embrace life more as a tie and go out and work the land, rather than going out and lazily spraying the weeds, I can see that God is using this to build relationships. Please pray with us for this family. Please pray that the Holy Spirit will guide us, prompt us, and empower us to share the, the good news of who Jesus is in a way that makes sense to them. Please pray that this family would be the start of a vibrant faith community here in the Chai. Okay. <clears throat> um, for those who were here last week, there might be a little bit of a recap. Tim said it's brought to you by Elson Party Hire, but that's a little bit rude. But um, if I'll, I'll let you know when you can wake up again. <coughs> um, I have a memory of when I was about 13 or 14 years old, and I went to a Thursday night before Good Friday service at our church. It was quite a solemn, quiet and uh, calm service that um, 
I had never been to before. When, as I said, Dad was a pastor and we kind of grew up running a muck around this church, playing hide and seek, like playing in the baptismal area and all the little hidey holes around the church. But uh, this service was kind of solemn and Dad just kind of walked me in and was like, okay, you know, behave yourself. <laughs> there were candles at the, the front of the church and as we read the story of Jesus' um, trial and death, the candles were snuffed out and at the end the place was dark the place was quiet and everyone could leave. Uh, I remember being quite moved for the first time really by the realisation that Jesus had died for me, that I went to the front of the, the, the church where there was a wooden cross on the ground and I remember kind of awkwardly in my teenage way kneeling um, and weeping and kind of acknowledging and accepting that Jesus made a difference back then, Jesus made a difference in our world and Jesus made a difference to me, that his death and resurrection changed something in my life. That was more than 20 years ago. Um, but I remember that uh, experience and I remember the first Easter, each Maundy Thursday, each Thursday before Good Friday each year. This year I was up in Albury overnight um, because I was meeting my sister who was driving down from Sydney um, and so there I was sitting by myself in my little one-man tent uh, in this strange caravan park in Albury with my head torch on, reading this story of Jesus, um, which I had done year after year after year. Remembering, reconnecting and recommitting with the living, dying and living again Jesus. While revisiting the cross and being grounded again and again in the foundations of our faith is really good and important. Without paying continual attention to what comes next, it's kind of found wanting. An encounter with Jesus must have a so what, a what now, a, a therefore, a and then. Otherwise, it's kind of empty. As Troy said, we're doing this series called Christian. Paying attention to post-Easter, what does a Christian really mean? What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? What difference does it really make? And this week we're looking at a new perspective. After the cross, after an encounter with Jesus, how does our perspective change? So we go back to the first Easter in the Bible. If you've got your Bible there, if you want to have a look um, in John chapter 20, we look at what happens to the, first, the, the closest friends of Jesus after, that, after his resurrection. And a whole lot happened, but I'm just going to zoom in on three small scenes. The first is after Jesus has been crucified, he's been raised to life, he encounters Mary, she goes and tells the disciples that he's alive. They've just discovered that their Lord, their friend, their leader has just been raised to life. And let's see what they do. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together... With the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Like, this is a crazy scene. I don't think the author could pack anything else into one paragraph. Every single line in that, every single phrase is kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. This is very significant stuff. Jesus appears to them. 
He shows them his body. He sends them out. He breathes the Holy Spirit on them. But where is all this happening? One little phrase, we get a glimpse. Is it a a great ceremony atop a big mountain or in an amazing cathedral or a temple? No, it's in a nondescript room. The disciples' first response after the resurrection of their king was to huddle together in a room with the door locked in fear. They sought comfort in each other's company, sure. But they shut the door to the outside, they battened down the hatches and they looked inward. Let's skip forward to scene two. About a week later, Jesus again appears to his disciples, this time by the Sea of Galilee. In this one, we get quite a lot of detail, even what people actually said. Quite a, quite a difference. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the, disciple, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, have you got any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net to the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. In the swirl of that week, with the miraculous encounters of Jesus playing over and over and over again in their minds, with the words of Jesus ringing in their ears, As the Father sent me, so I send you. With the lingering memory of his breath on their faces and with some kind of receiving of the Holy Spirit, what did they do? Well, they went fishing. This isn't a kind of go fishing, like recreational gone fishing sign on the the doorstep. This is their livelihoods. This was their work. They had to eat. But they went back to what they had known before before they had dropped their nets and followed Jesus. They went back to familiar territory, to their old ways. I have no idea what was going on. I wonder, in my imagining, were they trying to ignore? Were they trying to forget? Did they go back to something so normal and so everyday and so ingrained in them? But weren't they changed people? So we've got these two scenes of these post-Easter responses to encounters with Jesus. The friends huddled together in the locked door, behind the locked door, and them going fishing, returning to the old ways, perhaps ignoring uh, this opportunity for change. The third scene. The guys have gone back to shore. They're cooking up some of the fish for breakfast. There's this conversation that happens with Jesus and one of the disciples about how much they love him. They're testing, or perhaps he's testing his commitment to them. And Jesus gives his mic drop moment, his climax. This is like the big message of this book of John. He says two words, follow me, follow me. And with that, or around that time, and all the other things he says around there, there is a change of perspective a change in their lives. From this scene, in the last chapter of John, we turn one paper-thin page of our Bibles, we do one little scroll of our phones. What comes next? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Acts of the Apostles. The actions. This is not the sit-around-and-wonder of the Apostles, or the ponderings of the Apostles, or the conversations... Over coffee of the apostles. 
or the if only of the apostles. This is the Acts of the Apostles. This is the accounts, the stories of how these disciples and others, these Jesus followers, these people who had had an encounter with him and acted and responded, how they kicked off this post-Easter disciple-making, relationship-restoring, place-renewing, community-transforming venture that continues to this day. On the screen here is one attempt at explaining the big message of the Bible in seven phrases, 14 words. And I like it. I like succinct. (laughs) God created. We rebelled. It's the Garden of Eden story. God persisted. That is the whole of the Old Testament. Isn't that the message of it? God persisted. Jesus redeemed. God invited. We participated and God completed. Have a think about what's happening in these John stories. There's this invitation to follow me. And then we have from Acts, the participation. What's happening right here in these stories, a few blokes eating breakfast on the beach, is a response to that invitation to participate, to leave the locked room, to leave the fishing nets, and to follow Jesus. They engage in courageous mission. And if you read through Acts, you'll find out all about it that led to their deaths. This was not easy stuff. Let's zoom forward to 2021, here and now. We are part of that same bit in the story. We are part of that same chapter in this grand narrative as the the disciples on the beach. We have that same gracious invitation to respond to Jesus and to follow him. Follow me. That same invitation. In my role at Global Interaction, I meet people who choose to accept and participate. They respond to the call to come alongside others, to be attentive to what God is doing and to join in that activity. People like Glenn and Liz. One part of my job here in Melbourne is to read applications and interview people who want to join our teams. The Saturday before last, it was amazing to interview eight people who were considering this. I met with Suzanne from Port Pirie in South Australia, a 26-year-old high school teacher who is choosing to follow Jesus by coming alongside Muslim women in a rural town along the Silk Road area of Central Asia. I met Danny and Beth Hunt. Many of you might know them. A couple from down the road at New Hope in Blackburn. They're choosing in their early retirement to follow Jesus by taking at least the next five years to come alongside Indigenous faith leaders in Yundamu community near Alice Springs. Danny said to me a few Saturdays ago, I could do this or I could get really good at golf. (laughs) I met Fiona, a mum of four teenagers and a midwife way up in Townsville who is choosing to follow Jesus by joining our South Asia team, providing community health and transformation in, those, in, in that place. And I want to tell you about Kim Lian. He's a 38-year-old guy. He's a kind of bad photo of him. Um, met him on Zoom. He lives in Siem Reap in, in Cambodia. Kim Lian's parents survived the Pol Pot regime and fled to a refugee camp where he was born in Thailand. For 13 years, his family lived in a thatched hut with nothing to do but wait for the next bag of rice or the next jug of water or to stand for long hours to go to the bathroom. 
When Kim Lian was five, he became ill and his parents prayed to God to heal him. He didn't get better. So then his parents prayed to ancestors and to Buddha for him to get better. And he did. So his parents were so committed to their Buddhist faith that at age 18, they sent Kim Lian uh, to the monastery to become a monk. For the next 11 years, he lived the life of a monk in the temple in Cambodia and in Indonesia. Yet he was unsettled. He was unsatisfied in his search for peace and for truth. Kim Lian left his orange monk robes behind and moved to Phnom Penh to look for work. He ended up meeting a group of Christians there and, and that had been informed by some American missionaries and he got some work translating in a language school. Yet Kim Lian wrestled with this cultural clash of a very, very Western-style Christianity, his inner spiritual walk and his deep Buddhist understandings. While he appreciated the teachings of Jesus, he did not appreciate this church's dogma, moralising and dualistic views. He felt the judgment and disapproval from the Christians. He felt anger and sadness that he didn't fit into their mould. He didn't conform to their box and he didn't feel comfortable in their locked room. In the 90s, as mission workers began to trickle into Cambodia after the fall of the Khmer Rouge, they failed to consider the damage that the genocide had caused. They say that 65% of uh, Cambodians that left Cambodia during, around after that time had post-traumatic stress disorder. So imagine the percentage of those that stayed. And there's this veneer of pretending that it's all okay without paying attention to the deep pain was part of the church at that time. Trauma was not even on their radar. Under the tip of the iceberg of smiles and acceptable behaviour, particularly Western Christian practices, swelled this deep pain and anger and great loss. Like so many of his generation, Kim Lian was impacted by this secondary trauma and he began to drink and the addiction set in. A little while later, he, met, he went to Alcoholics Anonymous and met a sponsor there who began to share stories of Jesus in a more gentle way, a more real and open way. He gave Kim Lian space to question, to explore, to feel his way, to, as he said, take one step forward and two steps back, but heading in the direction toward knowing Jesus. Kim Lian said, I had hurt in my heart. I lived in fear. I did not have honour and value for myself. As I sought God, I began to see what it meant to be a man who is honest, to take responsibility, to try to be patient, humble and forgiving. I found freedom in Jesus. He is the source of my peace and truth for my life. A few Saturdays ago, Kim Lian said, while my parents didn't see Jesus healing me, that little sick boy in the refugee camp in Thailand, over the years, God has provided inner healing more than he could imagine. Transformation in Kim Lian's life. He has a new perspective indeed. Jump forward a few years, and Kim Lian now plans to join the Global Interaction team in Siem Reap. They are... Uh, engaged in community transformation, building relationships and ultimately seeing a vibrant contextual expression of faith that pays attention to the deep needs of the Cambodian people. Kim Lian will join eight other families, some Cambodian and some Australian, in this venture. 
One of Kim Lin's referees wrote, wrote to me. He said, he will never be a cookie-cutter missionary. He will be his own unique self, a poet, a philosopher, with a love of soccer and nature and art and culture and land. If you're looking for someone who has arrived, he's not your man. But if you are looking for someone in process, willing to learn, change and grow as he follows Jesus, then he is your man. Brian McLaren says, the world needs a new kind of Christian. Well, maybe Kim Lian is one of those. Let's jump across the border to Thailand and hear the story of another person who has gained a new perspective from following Jesus. May Run is an ethnic Thai believer. Her testimony is one of heart transformation. God placed global interaction cross-cultural workers in her path and through their friendship, Mehran met Jesus. This is her story. My name is Mehran. I have two sons and I live with my husband and my in-laws. I am a farmer. Every day I work in the field or the home garden. That's the way it has been for generations. In the morning, I go to work in the rice fields and help harvest the rice. Before I knew God, a lady came and helped my dad when he was sick. She kept my dad company and cared for him. And over time, we grew closer. I was impressed. Why did she help us? even though we were not related. Before I knew God, my life was very, very bad. I had a lot of anger and hate for people. But God made me accept them. I have no more hate toward them. His love is even for my enemies. We cannot forget the teaching of Jesus. He told us to love one another, to love and forgive one another. Joining our small faith community wasn't easy. There are friends and neighbors who don't want us to meet and to know God. I feel very good when I am with our faith community. We support and encourage each other. When we meet together, we worship God and share with each other. The Bible gives us wisdom and helps us understand God's love. Now the things I was afraid of in the past, I no longer fear. I really like everyone to know God. Because God really loves us and never abandons us. No matter where we are, He will be with us always. These stories might seem far away from our reality here in Ringwood, but I do wonder if it's uh, perhaps not as far as we think. What a unique situation we have here as large numbers of second and third generation Chin and Karen, Burmese, Buddhists from that same region of the world. Perhaps the kids that Kim Lian played with in that refugee camp in Thailand are arriving here on our doorsteps. 
these families now shop at the street where we shop. They send their kids to the same school. Just the, the, the new shop in Ringwood East is a, a Burmese supermarket. Just down the road from our NCR op shop. We're having a great opportunity here. I find the scenes that we looked at earlier in John are helpful metaphors for us to consider my response, our response to these encounters with Jesus. One, there's the huddle in the room, perhaps looking inwards for fear of the outside. Two, there's going fishing, just going, going about our work, perhaps ignoring or forgetting, or perhaps just being apathetic. And the three, there's following Jesus, accepting that invitation to participate in what God is doing in the world. So I encourage us now to consider our responses. Post-Easter, after that encounter with Jesus and that memory of the cross, as we move through May, perhaps the memory of the cross lingers on our minds. Perhaps as we encounter God through our worship in our church and small groups, as we we read scripture, as we go for a run, as we spend time with God, how do we respond? What do we choose? For me, as I walk around Wombolana Reserve some mornings and I take in a deep breath and I consider what is my choice today? I choose when I'm standing at the pickup gate, picking up the kids, as I make these little micro decisions about which mums and dads to talk to. We choose as we plan our social events for the weekend. Oh, who should we have over for dinner on Saturday night? We choose when we decide how to spend our money. We choose even when we decide which engage activity to be a part of. Do we choose the closed room? Do we gravitate towards huddles of like-minded people finding comfort and safety with each other? Sure, that's fine. This is good and necessary at times. But what happens if we don't unlock that door? Or do we choose to go fishing? Forget, Forget the encounter with Jesus. Ignore it. Become ambivalent. Become distracted. Go back to old ways. Or do we choose to follow him? to the neighbours, the streets, the homes, even to the nations. To connect with those who don't know him across the playground, across the office space, across the suburbs or across the oceans to spend our time, our emotional energy, our relational capacity, our investment of our money, all that in the stuff of following Jesus. We've got this fantastic, exciting action-packed accounts in the Acts of the Apostles of what those blokes did on the beach. I cannot wait to read of the Acts of Kim Lian, what he's going to do in his 40s and 50s. I can't wait to read the Acts of Mehran in Thailand. What will the Acts of Susan Campbell say? What will your Acts say? What will the Acts of New Community of Ringwood say? If you want to come up, he says... Finally, we've looked at what the disciples did in those stories. But perhaps the best bit is if we look at what Jesus did. In many of the stories we read about the crowds of people following Jesus, large numbers flocked to hear what he had to say. But these stories in John offer something different. When the disciples chose to cower in that locked room, Jesus finds them. He sought them. He found them. He turned up. 
He showed them his scars, reminded them of who he was, and he invited them to open that door. Then, when they chose to go fishing, Jesus finds them. He reminds them who he is. He shows them his power, the whole fish hauling thing, and invites them to follow him. Even when we choose to ignore, even when we choose to forget, even when we choose to be apathetic, Jesus will not be far away. And when the disciples heard his voice from the shore, they obeyed. Perhaps that's the invitation for you this morning. That's all you need to do. Learn to recognize the voice of Jesus. Listen for that voice and obey. Follow me, Jesus says. Follow me.